0: My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the Eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our second reading this afternoon, no, this morning, yesterday was this afternoon, um, is Psalm 40 on page 878 of the Pew Bible. Psalm 40, page 878. Hear these words from the psalmist. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out, out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock. And gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O oh Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things that you planned for us. No one can recount to you, Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take away my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. And may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. As for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be God. to God. I want to begin this morning by um, telling you all about the, the most impressive, the most, the most architecturally sophisticated sandcastle that I ever built growing up. Um, and just to set your expectations a little bit, I grew up in Florida. America's most famous peninsula, arguably the sandcastle capital of the world. So you should just assume that my best sandcastle is several tiers better than you know some inlander's best sandcastle ever. Uh, don't ever pick an island over a Floridian in a sandcastle contest, another word. Sandcastle might not even be the right word for this thing, actually. It was, it was much more than that. It was this village of sandcastles that was connected by a state-of-the-art water system, this series of canals that fed into a moat of five or six different castles. And the way that it worked, and try to picture this in your mind a little bit, um, is that I built this big bay, this big deep and wide pit type thing that was several feet across, and it opened up towards the ocean, towards the incoming waves, and then it closed off into a big wall. And so as the waves came in, this bay would catch them, so to speak, fill with water. And then on the closed off side of this bay, I built my first canal, a strong, wide, straight canal that was sloped slightly downward so that it could carry the water up the beach and away from the ocean. And then this canal would split off into a series of smaller waterways, all eventually curling into a moat around my magnificent castles. And it it really it was really kind of ingenious. My my castles were far enough away from the water that uh, they weren't in danger of being swept away. Their moats always stayed full without me having to refill them with buckets, um, because each time a big wave came in, the bay would catch it, soften its blow, and feed the water into the into the moats. And as long as this system of waterways stayed straight and whole and sound, it worked. It worked really well. The bay feeding the water into the canal. The canal is breaking off into six or seven <laughs> different directions and curling around each castle, exactly as I thought it up, just like I designed it. Uh, but of course, things built out of sand on a busy beach don't stay in pristine condition for very long. I I think I was the one that felt the, the dealt the first blow um, to my castles, tragically. Unfortunately, I, I was running to catch a frisbee, and I looked down to see the castles at the last second too late. Tried to pivot, but I still put a foot down right in the middle of one of the canals. Um, and so, it wasn't all ruined, but a lot of it still worked. But the perfect straight system of waterways was broken, and the northern quadrant started to flood pretty pretty badly. And some of the castle's moats started going down. Uh, it was it was my younger brother Sammy that that was the next one to damage it. He took a boogie board right across the center of it. Uh, and at this point, the wa- the castle's water supply problems got even worse. But it was it was the pack of children. Uh, I think it was a birthday party or something that. Um, did it in, just stampeded right over it like a bunch of wild animals. Um, I think they had seen a crab or something. And at this point, the whole thing is barely recognizable, right? Uh, none of the canals connect to each other anymore, and the water couldn't reach its destination at all. It just didn't work. Uh, it was a shame, but, you know, it's the nature of the beast for sand castles and sand irrigation systems. And I tell, you, I tell you this story because the system of waterways, the best sandcastle that I ever built, it's going to be sort of our driving, overarching metaphor for this morning as we continue our sermon series that we are in on sin, during which we are exploring what the Bible has to say about the problems in the world and, and in ourselves. And, you know, I suspect this metaphor is going to break down at some point, but that's on me to figure out where that line is. Your job, just keep this picture in your head. The architectural genius of a young Caleb Punt slowly undone by the chaos of Daytona Beach. So far in this series um, in which we are looking at uh, a single word from the Bible related to these problems in the world, so far we have talked about sin. the Hebrew for that is kata which means to miss to miss the mark and we have talked about transgression. Pesha is the Hebrew word for that which means betrayal, a misdeed that has made all of the worse because of who it is committed by, committed by someone that you trust or that you loved. This week we are considering the word iniquity, iniquity. Which, is this the most bible word out of the three that we've considered so far? The most sort of old-fashioned one? Um, probably between either this one or transgression, but I think I would actually give the edge to iniquity. Before I started studying for this sermon series, I, I don't think I had any idea what the English word iniquity really meant, besides the fact that I knew that it was a part of a list of a bunch of other bad things in the Old Testament at various times. But the biblical word iniquity, like sin, sort of, actually has a very literal, concrete meaning at its core. Just like the word for sin literally just means to miss, the word behind the English term iniquity comes from the Hebrew verb avah, which just means to be bent or to be crooked. More specifically, avah means for something to be bent or crooked to the extent that it can no longer function like it was designed to. For instance, in Psalm 38, Uh, We didn't read that one for this morning, but in Psalm 38, the poet says at one point that he avod his back. It's an experience that I know that many of you have had before, meaning that his back uh, became crooked. It was bent out of shape to the extent that it wasn't working right. He can't straighten up and walk around freely. In Lamentations, the author mentions a road that has avod, meaning it's no longer straight. It's crooked uh, and gnarled to the point that it's not trustworthy. It cannot reliably get you to where you need to go. When I put my big dumb right foot down, right in the middle of my canals, uh, in the middle of my sandcastle aqueduct, I avahed it, I smushed it, I broke it. So that it could no longer supply castle number five with its moat refills. So avah is the verb. Iniquity is this verb turned into a noun. Which means that iniquity means something along the lines of crookedness or brokenness. Iniquity is what happens when something avahs. It's the consequence of being broken or bent out of shape. Again, this word can function on a literal level, can refer in the Bible to busted wagons or fences, but the really profound application comes when the biblical authors start to use this term in more theological and metaphorical ways to talk about the human condition, to talk about sin, the pain and suffering of the world, and how we all, we humans, relate to it, we're implicated by it, and we suffer from it. Iniquity, crookedness, brokenness. I bet you can already start to see how this relates to sin, to misdeeds. We even preserve this meaning a little bit in the English in certain instances. If I told you that I ran into a crooked mechanic last week, you would know exactly what I mean, right? That guy, that guy he took me for a ride. He, he treated me poorly. He took advantage of me. And under this framework, evil actions, iniquity, they're, they're actions that don't line up right with God's character and God's intuitions. They're bent. They're off. They're crooked. But I think the really interesting part is this. And that in the imagination of the Bible, acting crookedly makes you crooked. Doing evil messes you up. It, it twists you. It, it, it breaks you, sometimes to the point that you cannot function correctly. You cannot stay straight any longer. Iniquity is both the misdeed and the result. Both my careless right foot and the ruined sandcastle waterways. The best and most concrete example that came to my mind this week, um, it's a little bit PG thirteen, actually. Um, so I hope you're ready for it. But seeing as most of y'all are two to three times my age, um, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure you can handle it. Uh, it's but it's it's pornography, internet pornography. Uh, are you? If y'all are not praying for the children, for the middle schoolers and high schoolers uh, that are growing up in the internet age, particularly the boys, if I'm being honest, you need to start uh, because you know think about it this way: when some of y'all were teenagers, if you wanted to. Look at something that you should not have been looking at. Um, what would you have had to do? I, this is, in some ways, a genuine question. I don't know what you, you'd have to like steal some money maybe out of your parents' purse and like go to a gas station or like find some kind of CD video store. Or, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what you did. I'm assuming that there were lots of steps involved, though. Um, nowadays, every middle schooler that you know, if they have a smartphone, which is all of them, they, they have instantaneous access to unlimited amounts of X-rated pornography, just sitting in their pockets constantly around the clock, which means around the clock temptation every moment of every day. And what's so terrible about this is that not only do I think that engaging in that kind of thing is sinful and that it misses the mark because it uses the body of another human being created in the image of God to fulfill a, a personal urge, not only is it sinful, but it's damaging. It's a crooked action that makes crooked. It breaks down parts of the users, the kids' character and and constitution. It's highly addictive, for one thing. It makes it harder and harder to resist the temptation. The more often they use to succumb to it. We don't even know, I don't think, how the pornography consumption of the younger generations is going to affect them down the line. It's going to be damaging. It's going to damage their ability to form healthy and truly fulfilling relationships. It will twist. It will bend. Boy, young boys' perception of women, because it rewires your brain. It, it scrambles pathways. It's like a boulder thrown down in the middle of those sandcastle waterways, those canals. Using pornography is a crooked action that makes crooked. It hurts those that do it. It breaks them. I think that's a very good example of iniquity. Let's flesh out the nuances of the term a little bit more. Because um, in the imagination of the Bible, you, you committing iniquity can actually cause iniquity in someone else. In other words, you acting crookedly can cause crookedness in others, can break others, can damage others. When Sam rode his boogie board right through my sandcastle irrigation system, that wasn't my fault. I didn't do that one. But now my construction system is busted. My castles have empty moats and they aren't working right. Have you ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? It's the same kind of idea. Uh, Becca, my wife, when she was in college, uh, she worked on a Native American reservation in Washington State with a, with a church group called Sacred Road Ministries, uh, they use, and they use that phrase a lot, uh, especially when introducing volunteers to the conditions in the reservation. Hurt people hurt people. So on the surface, it can occasionally be difficult to sympathize with the individuals, mostly kids that the mission serves. A few of them could be described as, as well-behaved. Sometimes they exhibit behavior that's just shocking, honestly. It's devious or angry, violent even. And some visitors, if they haven't been properly prepared, can be, can be shocked, frustrated, bitter when they run into these realities. But um, you know, through the education of Sacred Road, you eventually learn of uh, the difficulties these kids have faced, the staggering amount of them who have been victims of abuse, violence, and you realize that they have been bent out of shape, that they've been, they've been made to bear someone else's iniquity. They've been made crooked by someone else's actions. At that point, your, your heart just begins to break for them. All right, we're we're gonna switch metaphors now. We're moving away from the sandcastle canals that get all messed up. Uh, That one has served its purpose, it's time to move on. Now I want you to imagine this crookedness, this brokenness, this iniquity. Some of it that we brought upon ourselves, some of it that's been created by others, all of it distorting our hearts and our minds and our cultures and our communities. It's multiplying and it's expanding and it's growing. And then the Bible imagines it morphing into this, this giant weight, a huge burden that settles on the back of individual people and on humanity as a whole, like a huge sack of rocks. This is the second major metaphor the Bible uses to describe iniquity. It's a a weight, it's a burden. If you were to ask me what the Hebrew word for punishment is, that's actually a complicated question because Hebrew doesn't have a one-to-one word equivalent for our English word to punish. Instead, Hebrew tends to use the phrase bearing one's iniquity. In Leviticus, when Moses is laying out all the things that the Israelites are not allowed to do, don't ignore the widows, don't eat unclean animals, don't exploit your servants. In our English translations, usually those instructions conclude with, don't do these things or you'll be punished. Or slightly better, don't do these things or you'll be held responsible. But in Hebrew, the phrase is more literally, if you do these things, you will bear your iniquity. You'll carry your iniquity or crookedness. That's because God respects the dignity of human choice. He wants a real relationship with real beings, and so he can't just micromanage everything and take control of our limbs and our tongues, and and just make absolutely everyone gets all gets along at all times. He doesn't want robots. So he gives humanity the dignity of bearing iniquity, of feeling the effect and the weight of actions, both personally and collectively. But the problem is, is that eventually it becomes too large to bear. We can become so overcome by the weight of it that we can't continue. The psalmist in our Old Testament reading or our First Testament reading, our first reading for today, gives a beautiful, if alarming, poetic description of this. And Psalm 40 is a long and wonderful and beautiful psalm with so much going on in it. And we might return to it again um, in this Easter season, actually, because not only does it describe the experience of suffering and struggling under the weight of iniquity, but it also is full of hope and trust in God to deliver. But for this morning, we're just going to zero in on what I might call the Lenten moment of the psalm, the point of tension before deliverance arrives. And it's in verse 11 and 12. And um, I'm going to read those verses again. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. For evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. You can hear and see the image of the psalmist's crookedness and brokenness piling upon him or her. Feel them collapse under the weight of it in verse 12, in this escalating action sequence, right? Evils have encompassed me. My iniquities have overtaken me. They're more than the hairs on my head, which I'm feeling more and more these days as so I continue to put off a haircut. Um, and, and my heart fails me. The problem is is that we are not able to continually caring for this iniquity on our own indefinitely, the Israelites, the people of God, knew this. They knew that um, although maybe they could come part of the way by, by having the law ba- breaker bear his iniquity in the form of punishment, there was no way that they, the people as a whole, Israel itself, could bear the iniquity within their ranks, uh, stand up under the weight of the crookedness and brokenness that swirled and multiplied in the nation. Our second reading uh, that we read this morning, which I'm guessing, I'm guessing that's the first time you heard that, Bible, that part of the Bible read aloud in church. Um, it is not... It's not a common one from Leviticus uh, but it's important because it describes a ritual that God gave the people of Israel as an act of mercy to help them deal with this fact to help them bear their iniquities on a certain day each year the high priest Aaron, Moses' brother yeah brother or cousin doesn't matter would take an unblemished goat and and the text says that Aaron would place upon the goat the iniquity of the people. The weight and the burden through this ritual was transferred from Israel to the animal. And the animal was sent away into the wilderness, taking the iniquity of the people with it. By the way, this is where the term scapegoat comes from, if you were, if you were wondering about that. And as strange as this kind of thing sounds to us, in the imagination of the culture of the Bible, this was an act of mercy on behalf of God to Israel. It was a way of dealing with the weight of crooked deeds. But... As we know, it was incomplete, it was temporary. It was a stopgap that didn't fix the problem. It had to be repeated year after year after year. It was sort of like taking painkillers indefinitely without ever treating the underlying disease or injury. It's time for our weekly turn, our weekly glimpse towards Easter. And to ask that question that we've been asking each and every week. All right, we've stared the problem straight in the face. What, What do we need? What would a solution look like? Well, like last week, what we need is a miracle and something that we don't deserve. We individually don't deserve it, and we, humanity at large, don't deserve it. We need someone who will bear all of our iniquity, our personal guilt and our crooked actions and their crooked results, the bad things that we've done that have hurt ourselves and that have hurt others. We need someone to bear that iniquity. In addition, the collective guilt of humanity as a whole This whole mess that we've made of things, the world with so much cruelty and strife and misunderstanding and so little empathy and compassion and so much violence. Uh, The iniquity of the world that is just so much crookedness and brokenness that at this point in the sermon, a ruined sandcastle, is not an appropriate illustration. Just too innocent and too lighthearted. We need someone to take that unimaginable burden off of us. Someone who is willing to let it crush them instead of us. And then this is the even bigger ask. We need someone who, through some unimaginably miraculous event or manner, is able to stand up under it, and to redeem it, and to eradicate it, to make that which is crooked straight again, that which is sick and ill healed, that which is broken and dilapidated new. This week we are going to finish actually by staying in the Old Testament. This is an all Old Testament Sunday, actually. We're going to finish by reading Isaiah 53, Verses 1-6. through Who has believed what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. But as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account." Surely he has borne our infirmities. He has carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. It's by his wounds that we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McCray Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.